0: On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Luke Stamps about diothelitism. We cover topics like, just what is diothelitism? Why does it matter to the Christian faith and to even normal discipleship? What are some benefits or potential costs to affirming this doctrine? Uh, if you have any thoughts about the episode in general or ideas or requests for the show, uh, hit us up on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or email us at contact at contactatthelondonlyceum.com or go check us out online at thelondonlyceum.com. Now, for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of The London Lyceum, a forum for hopefully friendly discussion and debate uh, that's supposed to generate deep and clear thinking. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak.
1: And I'm your other host, Brandon Askew.
0: And today we have the distinct pleasure to introduce you to uh, one of the rising Baptist stars of Baptist Catholicity, uh, Dr. Luke Stamps, or I guess it's R. Lucas Stamps, um, depending on what book I'm reading. I'm really looking forward to talking to him. I think you're going to really enjoy li- learning from him. And today, the topic we're going to be l- looking at is called, I guess, diothelitism is, is the cool word for it. And we'll figure out what that means in, in a moment. Um, but I'll I'll give a brief you know, mention on this is actually the doctrine that got me introduced to who Dr. Stamps was. I had no idea who he was. Um, in 2016, this big Trinity debate blows up. Um, I'm on the Twitter sphere. So I'm seeing all these like smart people talk about stuff that I don't understand. And I end up finding Dr. Stamps dissertation, reading it and it was super edifying and very, very, very helpful. Um, so since then I've really enjoyed following his work and especially, the, he's got a book that he's edited with Matt Emerson on Baptist Catholicity, which I'm a huge proponent of. I think that's needed in Baptist life. Uh, so all that to say, I really like what Dr. Stamps is doing. A lot of the stuff he he's talked about, and I'm really interested to talk to him about this topic. So Dr. Stamps, I'm going to imagine 75% of our listeners know who you are. The other 25% have never heard of you. So maybe give us a little bit of background about just who you are and then what made you interested in this topic? Because, you know, when I was in seminary, uh, even after I graduated, I had never heard of this terminology and I apparently, maybe I just fell asleep in systematic theology and that's on me. So why did you get interested in this?
2: Yeah. Well, thanks. Thanks guys for having me on. Um, happy to talk about this topic and anything else you'd like. Um, So I'm, uh, just to kind of tell you a little bit about myself, I'm an assistant or associate professor of of Christian theology at Anderson University in in South Carolina. Uh, There is another Anderson in Indiana that's Church of God. We're the Anderson that's (laughs) STC in uh, South Carolina. Um, But um, yeah, so my background uh, is in theology. I did a PhD in systematic um, at Southern Seminary in Louisville. Um and so I guess my interest in this um this particular issue kind of started early in my career at Southern as an MDiv student. Um because I had a a professor uh there who exposed me to a particular understanding of the incarnation uh that's sometimes known as spirit Christology, um, which you know has you know, proponents in all different kinds of spheres, but, but, but some actually fairly popular level uh, preaching uh, kind of runs along this line. Um, and I think a lot of people assume this view of the incarnation. that basically says uh, in becoming incarnate, uh, God, the son kind of turns off his deity, uh, sort of like a switch, you know, he still has it, you know, as a kind of generator backup, you know, that he could turn on, uh, so to speak. But essentially, he turns off his deity in order to live within the constraints of, of ordinary human limitations. Um, and so the, all the things that we see Jesus doing miraculously in the Gospels are simply a function of his spirit-empowered humanity. So This is, this is uh, Christ, the Messiah, the, the, the human Redeemer, uh, who is in dependence upon the Father in the power of the Spirit uh doing these these miraculous things, um and that always struck me as odd, uh you know, having first been exposed to that, you know that from the very beginning, I was like, well, that's not really what I seem to have assumed uh this whole time. Um, you know it seems to me that the the miracles are a function of Jesus deity, you know that he's he's demonstrating himself to be more than merely a man, mm-hmm. um and so on uh, but as I sort of unraveled this particular. Um issue it, it became apparent that part of uh, the argument um, behind this idea of of Jesus kind of living within the constraints of spirit empowered humanity is that the, the um the volitional capacity of of his person, his will um, is is singular. He only has one will that to be a person is to have a will if he's one person. He only has one will. Um, and so this is, you know, kind of the only thing that, that we can conclude. If he's a singular, singular person, he has to have only one will. Well, as I explored the history of doctrine, I found out that that's actually not what the church has said historically. In fact, there's an ecumenical council that convened um, in the 7th century uh, to say precisely the opposite. You know, so, so that here we have the historic Christian church on record. In an ecumenical council, that's supposed to be ecumenical. Just simply means worldwide, right? So it's supposed to be uh, the the worldwide belief of of uh, the United Church um, that says Christ has two wills uh, because he has two natures. He has two wills: the nature of God, nature of man. Therefore, he has a divine will and a human will, two wills. Um, and now, all of a sudden, there are all these evangelical. Theologians and philosophers and preachers who are out there saying no. As a matter of fact, he only has one will, mm-hmm. and we don't really need to listen to that sixth ecumenical council anyway. So that that is sort of all of that was kind of coming down on me as a first year MDiv student, and as someone who's sort of uh, intrigued by these sorts of things, um, that got me going, and so that eventually took full flower in a PhD dissertation some years down the line.
1: That's awesome. So you you've you've pretty much already spelled out the, the different views here, but just for the listeners who, who are totally unfamiliar with this discussion, let's just put the, the definitions with the proper labels and everything. So can you uh define for us diothelitism and then the opposing view monothelitism, and then maybe go a little bit more into uh what what the early church uh early church councils have to do with how this was was spelled out in the early years of the church.
2: Right. So you can kind of hear, uh, you know, in those words, um, the 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 numbers two and one, right? When we talk about um, duo or dio, uh, a dyad uh, that's two, and then mono, like a monorail, we mean one, right? So uh, the 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 Greek word, one of the Greek words for will, is thelema. So that's the other piece of the uh, the word there. So diothelitism or duothelitism um is the belief that Christ has two wills. Uh that the will, uh again, the the, the volitional function or, or capacity of, of a person, uh will is actually uh a function of a, a person's nature. Uh, so to have a nature is to have a will. Um, so if Christ has two uh natures according to the Council of Chalcedon, he does, right? So if we kind of think in terms of the early church councils, um, I know not everyone knows this history inside and out, um, but there are seven. There were seven sh- sort of church meetings in the early centuries of the church uh, that are known as the councils of the church that are received as ecumenical, again, as worldwide. Um, so if you think about, you know, there are all different kinds of branches of Christianity Uh, Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, Protestantism, and all of its varieties. Uh, Well, before the church was divided, uh, we think about like the Great Schism and then the Protestant Reformation. Uh, These are councils that were convened in what's referred to as the undivided church. So before uh, those kinds of modern, uh, you know, medieval and and modern uh, divisions. So there are seven of these councils that are recognized by all three branches of Christian theology. Uh, as ecumenical, as sort of worldwide councils of the undivided church. Um, so um, the the, um, the sixth of those is the one that concerns this particular issue that we're looking at here. But prior to that, uh, the, the Council of Chalcedon uh, in the 5th century had more clearly sort of defined what do we mean by the incarnation. The first uh, couple of councils mainly concerned with the Trinity – and then the the, the the last five of these councils concerned with what does it mean for God the Son to become a human? Well, the kind of high watermark um, as we think about the doctrine of the Incarnation is the Council of Chalcedon, 451, which defines uh, what's referred to as the hypostatic union, uh, that Christ is one hypostasis, one person. That's the Greek term for person. Uh, but he has two natures. So that's kind of accepted at the, after that point. You know, after 451, that's the accepted view. Uh, by Christians everywhere that, um, you know, with some exceptions we could talk about, but, you know, for the most part, um, you know, that Christ has, has, is one person who has two natures. Well, then that, that question gets posed, you know, well, what about the will? Is the will one of those things that we would sort of put at the level of the person or or the natures? Um, and so that was kind of part of the debate uh, that led, led up to the Sixth Ecumenical Council in the 7th century, was sort of clarifying, well, what, what do we mean when we talk about Christ having two natures? And especially as mm-hmm. we press that into the issue of his will.
0: Yeah, so when I think about the reasons someone would want to say that Jesus had one or two wills, I, I understand the modern people. I guess I think William Lane Craig is an example of somebody who would say um, Jesus has one will because at, persons can only have one will. I think that, I mean, it makes sense that that's the idea of going behind it. But it seems to me anyway, that if we're dealing with a divine person, maybe there's a new, unique thing going on here um, that he could have two wills. So are there more reasons than just saying, well, person equals one will that would motivate me to say, I want to say Jesus has one will or are there mo- other motivations that are going on, going on there?
2: Yeah, so I think both sides of this debate are worried about potential heresies on the other side. Hmm. I, mean, I think that's kind of one one way to to think about this. So that those who are those who are uh, compelled to say that Christ has only one will, uh, it's not merely just a, a kind of you know philosophical nicety that they're trying to sort of refine this definition of person that can only include one will. the The fear is if Christ has two wills, if you're saying that uh, that Jesus christ the the person that we see you know walking around nazareth talking to people is somehow in possession of two wills two volitional centers so to speak um then according to the one will side anyway it's difficult to see how we would avoid uh one of the major heretical dangers in the early centuries known as nestorianism so nestorianism for those who may not know is uh a view that goes back to a certain Nestorius um, in, in the fifth century, uh, who basically said that um, there are two sons uh, that we see in the in in uh, the the incarnation. There is the sort of son of Mary, the human that we see there, human person, uh, but there is also the divine son that, in a sense, is kind of entered into this adoptive relationship with this already existing human person, Jesus. Um, and there's a long history there. But essentially, the Nestorian heresy is the two-persons heresy. It's the idea that that uh, when we see Christ, we're actually seeing two sons. There's the Son yeah. of God, um, who is, again, kind of entered into this relationship with a distinct person, a distinct son, the Son of Mary, Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, and the church recognized through Cyril of Alexandria and others in the fifth century that that was a mistake. Right, it's a mistake to think about Christ as being two persons because that would divide Him, uh, and and we actually need Him for the for the second redemption. We needed to need Him to be united, right, as the one God Man who accomplishes salvation on our behalf. Um, so the the one who dies on the cross, it's important to say that it's not merely a man hanging there, but it is very Son of God who dies in order to provide redemption. So uh, if you're concerned about that sort of thing, which we all should be, then we want to make sure that whatever we say about the wills of Christ is not leading us down a Nestorian path. And so I think that's part of what motivates people uh, towards the one will position. But on the mm-hmm. other hand, right, there, there are other heresies besides that
0: mm-hmm.
2: uh, we have to look out for, right? It's kind of a landmine um, uh, in a way. So those of us who hold to the historic position of two wills would say, you know, if, if Christ has only one will, then we're in danger of another set of heresies. Um, namely, one of which is Apollinarianism, uh, which uh, again, sorry, this is sort of heresy 101 here, but um, <laughs> you know, Apollinarianism is the view that actually goes back to the fourth century um, uh, by a certain Apollinaris um, who, who basically said, well, in the incarnation, uh, God the Son only assumes a human body. He doesn't—he doesn't take to himself a distinct human soul, because he already is a person. Uh, he sort of already has the, the the potential to be a human soul, and so he simply assumes a human body. And it's the person of the Son who, in a sense, takes the place of the human soul. Uh, well, the Church recognized that was a mistake as well. Uh, because if he doesn't assume a human soul, then how can he redeem my human soul, which is in need of redemption? Um, and so uh, Apollinarianism is another danger out there uh, as well. And so those on the two wills side would say, well, wait a minute. If you're going to say he, he doesn't have a human soul, I mean, if, he, if you're going to say he doesn't have a human will, rather, uh, then what kind of will does he have? Uh, he must then only have a divine will that's kind of taking the place of the human will. Well, it's actually quite important for my salvation that he assumes a human will, because it's the human will which is precisely the locus, the place through which uh, sin entered into the human race. Right? It's through the the the, the corrupted will of Adam uh, that sin entered entered into the human race to begin with. And my will is the very uh, sort of seat of of my corruption and fallenness. So I actually need a redeemer who assumes takes to himself a human will in order to redeem my fallen human will. And so if he doesn't have that, if his divine will is sort of just taking the place of it, then we kind of have another Apollinarianism all over again.
1: Yeah. I think it might be helpful if we kind of think about this through how we would um, interpret specific passages of Scripture that involve Jesus. And one that's coming to mind is Jesus in the garden when he says, he's praying to the Father, and he says, not my will, but yours be done. Now, with these categories in place, what how how should we understand what's going on there when Jesus is, is praying to the Father? Is that um, his human will praying to the divine will? Kind of maybe unpack that for us so we can we can better understand how to look at passages like that.
2: Yeah, so that text in particular is is not the only text that that entered into this discussion, uh, but it was one of the main ones because it it seems. Uh, I mean, at the very least, it's, it's striking that we have here the incarnate Son of God saying to the Father, "Not my will, but Your will be done." So there seems to be some kind of distinction between mm-hmm. the will of the Son and the will of the Father. And what's interesting is you, that that passage in itself is a, is in a sense underdetermined on this question. In other words, you could read that text either way, uh, and in fact. I mean, someone uh, that Jordan mentioned earlier, William Lane Craig, um, in a book that he uh, co-wrote with uh, J.P. Moreland uh, that addresses this issue. Um, They actually say, well, the Gethsemane narrative, uh, not my will, but thine be done, actually supports the one will view. So they would argue that what's happening there uh, in the garden is the person of the son who is in possession of his own distinct will as a person. Uh, is speaking to the person of the Father, who is in possession of his own distinct w- will as a person, so that what you have here are two divine wills: the divine will mm-hmm. of the Son and the divine will of the Father. Which is an important is an important admission, I think, because it, it, what what this um, what this highlights is the fact that whatever whenever you start to tinker in one area of theology, mm-hmm. other areas start to be affected as well. Uh, so if you're saying that. In the case of the incarnate Christ, if you're saying that wills belong to persons and because Christ is only one person, he must therefore have only one will. If you take that logic and you sort of push it back into the Trinity, because after all, the person of Jesus is one of the three persons of the Trinity, right? Uh, Then you start thinking about the Trinity. Well, the Trinity, so we affirm the Trinity is three persons, right? One divine nature, but there are three persons who subsist in the one divine nature. Um, and if person and if wills belong to persons, there are three divine persons. There must be three divine wills. Mm. So you get you you get a kind of what's sometimes referred to as a social view of the Trinity, where the distinct persons of the Trinity are seen as distinct centers of consciousness and will. Which you know there are many people who want to go down that road, but that too is out of step with what the fourth century, fifth century fathers were, were would have imagined about uh, the Trinity. So uh, you could interpret the Gethsemane narrative in, a, in, a, in a, a way that gets you one will in Christ and therefore three wills in the Godhead. But the majority uh, in the history of interpretation has gone the other way, has, has begun with the assumption that because God is one, he can only have one will. So that what we have when we see this distinction in, in Gethsemane between the will of Christ and the will of God is not, not a clash of divine wills, but it is a tension or or, uh, a sort of natural um, conflict between the human will that the Son of God has assumed and the divine will of the Father, which the Son, as it so happens, also possesses, along with the Spirit, right? That there's only one divine will. Uh, But in this case, it's the human Christ addressing the Father in prayer. So that's where you get the distinction of wills. Now that's a long uh, answer. I know it's probably all of these answers have been, but um, the, I think what's important um, to note, and this is one of the things that I tried to bring out in my dissertation, is that um, exegesis of any of these particular texts that we look at it can never be carried out in isolation from doctrine. That, and that's not a bad thing. It's not that it's that's not just a matter of us reading our doctrine into texts, mm-hmm. but all of us come to the task of interpretation uh, with certain assumptions about doctrine that are informed and shaped by our assessment of other texts and all of the texts of Scripture taken together. Uh, so if you assume that uh, as, a, as a kind of uh, presumption or, or presuppositions coming coming into the Gethsemane narrative, that there really can't be three divine wills because because of monotheism you know, because there's only one divine nature Mm -hmm. because of the homoousion from the council of Nicaea or whatever, whatever it is that you're, that has lent you to that, that pre-commitment, then you can't read Gethsemane as a clash of divine wills. It has to be a matter of the human will of Christ. Um, Mm -hmm. And, and conversely, if you, if you assume that social Trinitarianism is the way the Trinity works, so to speak uh, then yeah, you could come to um, the Gethsemane narrative and read it in a way that would see uh, two divine wills, the will of the Father and the will of the Son. But the point is that it, the text in isolation is underdetermined, but it, how we interpret it is shaped by our broader doctrinal commitments, which I, I think is an, actually a very important um, point to make in terms of how we actually practice biblical interpretation.
1: So, I don't think I'd ever put that connection together That that to... To be a proponent of, of monothelitism, you, you're pretty much bound to social trinitar- Trinitarianism. I get, and so historically, has that been the I know you're saying if you're going to be consistent in your theology, that has to be the case. But like, is there any example of someone who wants to try to still hold to one will um, in, in God's essence, but then also just one will for Christ? I mean, that seems like a difficult, given everything you just explained, that seems like a really difficult task. But is there, uh, has it fallen that neatly like that, you know? all social Trinitarians are, are proponents of monothelitism and, um, you know, all who hold to a more, I want to say traditional, but I guess that's not the right Western, maybe, I don't know, uh, yeah. view of the Trinity, see the, the two wills in Christ.
2: Um, yeah, I mean, I think I, I, as far as I know, um, all those who hold to a one will Christology would hold to something like a social view of the Trinity, whether or not they would let, claim that label or not. Mm-hmm. Um, now, if I were to run the experiment the other way and ask, could you, could you be uh, a Latin Trinitarian or whatever, and, and hold to only one divine will and still hold to um, a, um, a one-willed Christ? Um I don't know how to, I don't know how to make that work. But I guess that, yeah,
1: because that just collapses into him not having. Yeah, I don't know that. Yeah, that wouldn't yeah. work either. Okay. Yeah.
2: Um, now I guess you could hold to so- social trinitarianism, three wills in divine in in the Godhead, and add a fourth will, um, you know, in the incarnation. Uh, but again, I don't know anybody that holds that. So far as I know, uh, people like you know uh, the the folks we've mentioned, uh, Craig and Moreland. And others in this in this debate um, who hold to the one will position also tend to tend tend toward a social view of the Trinity. And conversely, those who hold to the one will view uh, or to the two will view in Christ uh, do so with the assumption that there is only one will, one divine will in God. And that 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 um, that correlation actually was brought out by the the primary figure in the 7th century who defended the two-wheels view, Maximus the Confessor, which is one of the great names in, in Christian theology, I uh, Maximus the Confessor. Um, uh, but Maximus, in, in in who defended the two-wheels view uh, in the 7th century, actually brought out this very point uh, in his disputation with Pyrrhus, who was another church leader. Uh, Pyrrhus was a church leader who held to the one will view and in his, in his uh, debate with Pyrrhus, Maximus actually brings out this Trinitarian point, that if you're saying that, um, you know, uh, if, if wills belong to persons, I mean, this is not exactly how Maximus puts it, I'm putting it in my own paraphrase, but if wills belong to persons, uh, and there are three divine persons, there must be three divine wills, which to Maximus's mind is an absurdity, because if there are three divine wills, and there are three gods
1: yeah mm-hmm.
2: so yeah that, that that implication was brought brought out from the very beginning wow.
0: yeah that's such an interesting implication to think that three wills equals three gods i mean is that do you think that's a legitimate argument to say that if you affirm three wills you whether you want to or not whether you want to be consistent or not you're going to end up a tritheist
2: i mean i try to not be that uh weeping in my 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 own discourse on these things because i do know people who hold to more social views or relational views as they're sometimes called mm-hmm. um that i wouldn't want to say oh well you're just a tritheist i mean that you know that you know there are people who go down that road one of my favorite lines i, I take some delight in this line even though i would never say it myself uh is from brian leftow uh who who in, in his in his critique of the uh the social view refers to it as refined paganism.
0: (laughs) Uh, Brian can get away with that, I think. Even though though his view, I think, is just as weird with all the time machine stuff that he likes to put out there. But I'll leave that alone.
2: (laughs) But, you know, I try to avoid that. You know, like this is another helpful lesson for for me uh, that I've sort of had to learn the hard way over the years. Is that, you know, just because you see an implication in someone else's view doesn't mean that you should attribute that implication to them. Yeah. Because maybe they don't see it or maybe they are trying to avoid it. And so just because someone holds to a social or relational view of the Trinity, I wouldn't want to I wouldn't want to say as a as a as a matter of of course, well that just makes you a tritheist. But for yeah. me anyway, this is the way I have to kind of hedge it. You know, for me, uh if I were to view the divine persons as distinct centers of consciousness and will, it's difficult for me to see how that mm-hmm. doesn't lead to some kind of tritheism. If you look at the history of doctrine, that that would be the case for all of the 4th and 5th century theologians, East and West, as well. I mean, I think the Cappadocians would have as much a complaint with that view as Augustine. Mm -hmm. But that's a historical question, maybe for another day.
1: (laughs) So while we have you here, uh, and feel free to punt this question, because this is not something we had discussed uh, beforehand that we were going to talk about, but we were discussing last night um, and I think this is related. So I'm going to, I'm going to go for it. <laughs> um, we were trying to figure out what exactly it is that the, the Oriental Orthodox church um, believes, you know, that that's more of, you know, their rejection of Chalcedon and the two, the two natures, but it relates to this. So is there a layman's answer uh, you know, one to two minutes on, on how, because i have no idea how to make sense of of what they believe when when it comes to because they they don't want they don't want to say they're monophysites so they they reject that so it's not just as simple as saying oh well you know you reject Chalcedon, so you've, you you now you're you're a heretic cuz they're saying they're doing something different but i don't know what they're doing and i would assume that that they're also going to be um they're going to say there's one will in in christ is that correct
2: uh, that's a little outside of my area of expertise of what the the Oriental Orthodox would do with the will question. I mean, as as far as I know um, about the question of Chalcedon, their rejection of of, of Chalcedon's two natures doctrine um, was again a fear of uh, a heresy that it might imply. Right. Okay. So uh, the fear uh, of of the Oriental Orthodox were referred to as the Oriental Orthodox. We think today about the Coptic church or Mm -hmm. I think the Armenian church uh, as well. Um, Is that, well, if you say there are two natures, how does that not take us back to Nestorius again where there are two persons? Um, And as far as I know, uh, things that I've sort of read in the news, that there have been some attempts at, at reconciliation between the Eastern Orthodox churches who would affirm Chalcedon and would affirm the other ecumenical councils and the Oriental Orthodox and also with the Roman church and the Oriental Orthodox. So it, it th- this may be a case of, uh, you know, a, of a 1600 year misunderstanding, you know, okay. but, uh, but again, you know, that's a little outside my area of expertise.
0: Okay. So, yeah. Go ahead. Jordan. Uh, yeah. I was just going to turn it to something that I do think is more in your, in your wheelhouse. Uh, and that's your take on Tom Morris's two minds view. So, I think both me and Brandon have a soft spot for Tom Morris because he was one of the first, um, I guess, his book, The Logic of God Incarnate, was one of the first real Christological books, at least for me, uh, I read that was trying to defend a robust creedalism in some sense, defend the coherence of it. Now, I do remember reading your dissertation. You give somewhat of a critique of him. I don't remember all the specifics of it. So, And I think a lot of our listeners would probably be interested in thinking through what does Tom Morris say and what are the potential problems with it? How does it not fit what is traditionally understood as diothelitism?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. Because I, I really appreciated that book too when I first read it and still do in many ways, because he's you know, he's trying to um he's trying to carve out a, a model of the Trinity that avoids um the the canonic view. Right? That's a yeah. that's a term that I didn't bring up earlier but the the view i described earlier is spirit christology is a version of canonic christology it comes from the the, the greek word canosin from um from uh, philippians 2 where paul says that uh christ emptied himself taking the form of a servant etc so canonic christology is this idea that that in becoming a human the son sort of empties himself of his deity in in some sense he either literally surrender certain attributes or he at least turns them off, um, in order to live within the constraints of a human, you know, ordinary human life. Um, and so what Morris is trying to do is to say, well, that, that's a model that may be coherent, uh, but it's actually, you know, out of step with the tradition (laughs) in, 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 a lot of ways. And, uh, can we develop another model that will account for, uh, the complexities of, of, of a two natured person. Without going down that road, and so the, yeah. he develops this idea of the two minds model that says, "Well, what if we say, you know, again, kind of mind is a part of the nature, yeah. uh, and if he has two natures, he has two minds. There's the mind of God that the the Son has access to, along with the, the Father and Spirit, but then he he takes to himself a, a human mind, the human consciousness that." Um, that stands in an asymmetrical relation to that divine mind. So the the divine mind knows everything that's in the human mind, but the human mind doesn't know ever, necessarily everything that's that that the divine mind has access to. Um, so that that I, that so far so good. I feel like this is this is consistent with what um say Gregory of Nazianzus was saying, in a different in different verbiage in the fourth yeah. century. Um, now the the critique that I make of Morris um in the dissertation is 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 tied more to his um understanding of what the metaphysics of incarnation are in the first place. Um and I don't know how deep into the weeds you want to get on this, but there are kind of two two major approaches on this on the uh, the question of well what kind of nature does does Christ assume in the incarnation? Mm-hmm. Is it a concrete particular? So like to, to assume a human nature is to assume a concrete human soul, mind, body, uh, to, to, so that human nature is seen as a concrete particular or in assuming human nature. Um, especially if, as we think about it, assuming a human soul, uh, I'm not sure what a, what an abstract human body would look like. I mean, his, the body assumes is concrete, uh, but the soul that he assumes or, or, you know, the, the mind is seen more in terms of an abstract set of properties. All uh, right. So, um, someone like Thomas Aquinas are, is going to be much more comfortable saying that the soul that Christ assumes is a concrete particular. So, so he, he assumes a man in a sense, right? A distinct mind-body unity, um, without assuming a human person. The person of the Son is the one who uh, gives person to that that human nature, that concrete human nature that, that he assumes. Uh, but someone like Morris and others in the contemporary literature. Um say so no, it's not so much a concrete particular, but it's just sort of the abstract set of properties that constitutes what it means to be a human that he assumes. So um because of that difference in you know his understanding of, of the human nature that Christ assumes, um it turns out, uh if if you sort of pull the threads a bit on on Morris's view, that it, his view may not. That, as comfortably with the idea that christ has two wills he might have two minds in the sense of two abstract sets of mental properties but the will the volitional faculty is still sort of residing in the person of the son so that's the son who decides how much of the the contents of the divine mind get fed into the human mind so that in the end he has a two minds view but not a two wills view that's Mm -hmm. that's the argument that that's interesting. More time to unpack, but that's uh, that's where I go with that. Hmm.
1: So, go ahead, Brandon. Well, I was just going to try to uh, bring it bring it down to the local church level yeah. um, before we wrap up, because some people maybe listen and they think, oh, okay, well, you know, we don't want to, you know, stumble into this heresy or that heresy, but maybe you know that doesn't matter them to them on you know Sunday morning. But so, what is the what is the relevance of all this to our life in a local church? Maybe specifically, what is the relevance of this to for pastors and how how we preach, um, and how we preach do you know doctrinally, and how we preach passages like the uh, the one in the garden um, that we discussed earlier, um, and maybe even discipleship. So what's what's the local church relevance here?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think part part of the answer goes back to biblical interpretation. The point I was making earlier that. Um, you know, when we come to a text like the Gethsemane narrative, uh, it's not as simple as just sort of isolating a particular text and kind of crunching the numbers to figure out, you know, like what the right answer is. But you're actually bringing with you commitments that are based on your reading of other texts of Scripture um, and how you put those together in Christian doctrine that is informing how you read that particular passage. So uh, so and at the very least, this this is going to affect how Preachers and teachers and other lay people are reading scriptures, how they're interpreting them and teaching them. Um, th- in terms of how it connects up to the Christian life, though, more more specifically, um, I, I think it, it has—one w- of the things that, that I um, always come back to in this conversation, and really all these conversations related to the humanity of Christ and the Incarnation, um, is— uh, a line from Gregory of Nazianzus, a fourth-century father, uh, in his in his uh, crit- crit- critique of the the Apollinarian heresy, again that idea that that um, that the Son only assumes a human body, not also a human soul. Uh, Gregory famously said, uh, "That which is unassumed is unhealed."
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, in other words, the, if there's any part of our human nature that was not taken to the person of the Son and in the incarnation, then just that part of our human nature remains outside of his redemptive work. Uh, in other words, he would just be part, he would, he would be part, part human, you know, well, we don't need a, a part human redeemer. We need a, a, a redeemer that's truly human in all, in all of its parts. Um, and so as the rubber meets the road in terms of the gospel, as we think about our salvation, right? Uh, we actually need Christ to have all that it, all that it means to be a human or besides sin, right? You know, that that we need a comprehensive incarnation, body, soul, mind, emotions, uh, all that it means to be a human because it's through that human nature that he renders obedience to God. It's through that human nature uh, that he, uh, you know, to put it in the categories of, of reformed uh, soteriology, that he, he performs his active and passive obedience, you know, uh, if, if we're going to have his, his, his obedience, his righteousness credited to us, it needs to be a human obedience, right? So that it can be uh, truly representative and, and a substitute for our own. Um, and so the gospel I think is, is, uh, at stake really, if we think about it carefully, that he has to be truly human in every sense of the word, except for sin, um, in order to, to be our representative and substitute. Mm,
0: that's good. That's good stuff. So for those who who want to dig into this topic more um I guess number 1 tell me I think you your dissertation is turning into a book at some point so tell us when where what does that look like and are there any other resources that are should, people should be going to
2: Yeah Yeah so my my dissertation is under contract with Fortress Press um although full disclosure, it's sort of been on the back burner for me. So maybe no one at Fortress is listening to this. I don't know. Um, (laughs) You know, over the last few years, I've been busy with some other projects, but yeah, it is, it is in the pipeline for me to, to, uh, you know, do some edits, do some expansion in a couple of places to, to get this in, in a book form. So hopefully in the next year, year, so, uh, that'll be, um, coming out. Um, and then in terms of like other things on, on this, uh, I, I, I wrote, um, an essay and a collection of essays on the incarnate or on the atonement rather, uh, that came out with Zondervan press. It was actually a part of the LATC, the Los Angeles theology conference, um, several years ago. Um, and so, uh, there's, I have a chapter in there on this issue, um, uh, that's a book edited by Oliver Crisp and Fred Sanders. And Oliver has written in in, in this vein as well. So um, uh, his, I guess the one place you go, his newest book, um, Analyzing Doctrine, um, has a, a chapter on this very issue, on the question of monothelitism, diothelitism. So that that will be one place to go in the meantime.
0: That's good stuff. So I guess for, for everybody who's listening, if you don't know who Dr. Stamps is, there are a couple places it seems like they can follow what you're doing in your work. You've got uh, what the Center for Baptist Renewal, right? So right. maybe give me 30 seconds on what that is and your role in there and why they should check it out.
2: Yeah, so uh, a good friend of mine, Matt Emerson, who I think you guys know as well, mm-hmm. um, and I we were we were colleagues at California Baptist University for several years um, several years ago now. Uh, but anyway, when we were there together, we we sort of realized we had a lot of similar interests in terms of uh, some of the stuff that that I've been talking about today, even like sort of recovering uh, the history of doctrine, recovering uh, the historic Christian hermeneutic, how we interpret the Bible, uh, but also recovering um, historic uh, Christian worship practices and and devotional practices uh, and and just ha- having this sense that just because we're Baptist doesn't mean that you know, the, the, one of our mentors, <laughs> Timothy George, puts it like this. Why should the Catholics have all the fun? You know, like, <laughs> that's kind of the sense that we were sort of forging uh, individually and then we realized, hey, well, you, you, you feel the same way, right? So we sort of had this sensibility um, that we shared in common, we discovered of not in any way wanting to um, uh, back down on our Baptist commitments, um, mm-hmm. but at the same time thinking, why should the Catholics or the Anglicans have all the fun, you know, like there's so much, there's so many riches in the Christian faith down through the centuries that we don't want to miss out on. And we've, we've benefited from, we want others to benefit from. So that, that friendship sort of, uh, sort of helped start to forge what became uh, the Center for Baptist Renewal. We met a couple of other friends, uh, Brandon Smith and and Winston Hotman who were at Criswell College together Kind of having the same sorts of conversations, and so the the four of us sort of kind of put our brains together and say, let's let's talk about how we could have some kind of uh hub for this, you know, like just yeah. uh, just to sort of encourage other pastors and and other uh, professors and and lay people to say, basically, you don't have to leave, you know. That was kind of part of the burden was to say, because we had so many friends who were becoming Anglican, Orthodox, Catholic. Yeah. Um, you, know, they, they, you know, people are just saying, like, we're done being Baptists because we've discovered the riches of the Christian tradition. And we were saying, well, pump the brakes on that a little bit. You know, if you want to leave, you know, blessings on you, but you don't have to leave. <laughs> you know, like you can stay uh, committed Baptist and uh, and still benefit from the riches of the Christian tradition. So that's how the Center uh, for, for Baptist Renewal was born. And we hope it's, you know, continues to grow. And and get attention from people. We, we we regularly get emails from people who say to us, man, this is the thing I, I, I've been wanting to be there for so many years. You know,
0: yeah.
2: people who've been ministering, you know, for years, uh, who would say to us, I've always wanted somebody to do this, you know, which is really encouraging to us, not because we're anything special, but we're just sort of trying to be a, a you know, a place of common camaraderie uh, around yeah. sensibilities
0: and uh, that's awesome and i'm really thankful you guys are doing it and i everybody's listening right now i tell you if you haven't checked it out before go google it right now go read the stuff on there i think it's a tremendous opportunity especially for us baptists i mean because I, I genuinely think baptists have have missed the boat on that and that's why so many have decided to leave like you mentioned and uh, i think there are ways for us to engage the tradition too it's not like we can't do it so i love what you guys are doing there i'm very thankful for it i commend that to you as well as the other resources dr stamps got out there we'll link to those in the show notes so you can go check them out Uh, we recommend you follow him on twitter so you can see him drop new resources and different recommendations there that you can get a hold of and use so dr stamps thanks for taking the time to talk with us this has been a lot of fun um really enjoyed it and I think I've decided to change my name to Jordan the Confessor. Cool. Uh, since, uh, since we talked about Maximus, it seems like a pretty good theological power move I can assert my, you know, intellectual superiority of some sort. <laughs> uh, but, but right. for all those who've been listening, you've been listening to the only analytic Baptist and Confessional podcast on the planet, and we thank you for tuning in.